Shemai, welcome back to the HR Podcast. Uh, sponsoring the podcast today, tonight, this evening, or whatever time of day you're listening to the podcast, is Westway Nissan, the UK's largest Nissan dealership, and headed by Tony Lewis, who himself is a military veteran. Westway Nissan are huge supporters of the military, uh, whether you're serving or whether you're veterans, and they demonstrate that through their 20% Discount for serving personnel and veterans. I should say up to 20% discount. It varies depending on what you're going for. They sell private private vehicles and commercial type vehicles. You can get cars, you can get pickups, you can get vans, you can get all sorts of makes and models of vehicle from Westway Nissan. In fact, there are certain makes and model of Nissan that you can only get through Westway Nissan because they've got exclusive deals with Nissan, which is fucking awesome. So the best way to go about getting getting a vehicle from Westway is to go into a dealership. They've got dealerships all over the UK. They've even got one in the home of the British Army in Aldershot. They've got a couple in Birmingham. They're fucking, they're fucking everywhere. I can't list them all because there's so many. I don't know them off my heart. I haven't got it in front of me. But get yourself into a dealership. Because, yes, they do up the 20% discount off of vehicles for you if you're a veteran or, ex-serving pers- or are a serving person. But also... You know what salespeople are like in dealerships or anywhere? If you go in there, flash a grin, have a bit of banter with them, they'll probably chuck some extra freebies in. You'll get like more of more of a deal when you when you go in. You go and see some nice shiny new Nissan vehicles. Awesome. They also do lease. They don't just do purchase, you can get lease higher from Westway. They have got uh, an offer on at the moment for winter. You can take a vehicle to Westway Nissan and they'll give you a free winter checkup. It's like a serv not service, it's like a checkup for your vehicle. Uh, ready for winter, funny enough. That's what's called a winter service. Go on, go online to westwindysand.co.uk, book your vehicle in for a free winter service. Take them up on it. Freebies, lovely. They might even um, spot an issue you didn't know about and help you out with that. Perfect. Thank you to Tony Lewis. Thank you to Westway Nissan. Awesome. Westwindysand.co.uk and Westway Nissan on social media, including LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also sponsored the podcast today are the Fucking amazing organization called Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organization formed from keen rugby players and beer drinkers out of old Lemontonians RFC in beautiful Lemonton Spa in Warwickshire. They were formed in memory of uh, R4H, I should say. Rugby for Heroes was formed in memory of Private Joe Whitaker, uh, who served uh, with the Parachute Regiment and sadly killed in Afghanistan. Uh, since forming... Rugby for Heroes, they've been going for 10 years, over 10 years, and they've raised over £100,000. They're not a big organisation, they're very small, and that money that they raise gets donated to military charities. They've got two events coming up. They've got uh, one event on the 27th of May, 27th of May 2020, and that is the a supper club. So, ticketed event, go along to the supper club, raising money for the 353 Trust, which is a, a military charity, and uh, Team Rubicon UK, which is a disaster response charity formed predominantly of military veterans, who I'm, I'm a part of. That organisation, really fantastic organisation, still two worthy causes there that Rugby for Heroes are raising money for. That is the 27th of May for the Supper Club. It, that's going to be at the Tame Hare, Leamington, an awesome restaurant, really good food. Um, the last Supper Club was there that I attended, and it, yeah, I, I, they did some fantastic things with food I've not seen before. They stuffed an onion. They stuffed an, what did they stuff the onion with? I can't really stuff it with, but it's bizarre. Anyway, I'm talking shit. Uh, I'm not talking shit. I'm talking shit. It's not that you eat shit. The team here is really good. Uh, 
I am waffling shit now. So that's that's the next event, the Supper Club. And then the, the event after that is on the 8th and 9th of May in 2020. And that is the Rugby for Heroes Beer and Gin Festival at the Old Lemontonians RFC in, again, Leamington Spa, beautiful Warwickshire. That is a weekend of beer and gin, funny enough, but also rugby. The Forces Barbarians rugby team are going to have a running out and play in the Old Lemontonians RFC veteran side. Again, we've just played them recently in November. We flipping lost, but we're going to beat them in May. And again, the money from that Rugby for Heroes Beer Engine Festival on the 8th and 9th of May next year is going to go towards Team Rubicon UK and 353 Trust, two uh, military-orientated organisations, uh, charities that uh, do amazing things, helping people out, putting money to good courses. So I will be there. I'll be there at both of those events. So if you can come along and join us, come along and join us the website to keep up to date with that information for rugby heroes is rugby for heroes rugby for heroes.org but on social media it's at rugby number four heroes so right now i'm streaming this on instagram live because i haven't done it in ages so if you're on instagram live go to at rugby number four heroes check them out keep up to date with that stuff awesome that is it for the sponsors today day another shout for uh nico viljoin my good friend he used to serve with the parachute regiment he's south african lad he's unfortunately developed a very rare form of skin cancer um his fiance tracy has set, set up a crowdfunding page to raise money for his treatment because such is the nature of the cancer that he has the, the best chance of his survival is to be treated at sheba medical center which is in israel israel is obviously not in south africa where uh where Nico is and his family are. So the the medical bills, and including the travel and all the rest of it, to him to get a life-saving treatment is going to cost in excess of a million rand. Um, they're on their way to hitting the halfway mark for a million rand. Like I said, his fiance Tracy has set up a crowdfunding page. So if you're able to go along there and donate to, uh, to be able to help um, Nico with his treatment, go to uh, charliecharlie1.com forward slash Nico and it will automatically redirect you to the South African based crowdfunding pages it's a really long website URL so that's why I've done a, a redirect on our website uh, go there and donate if you can if you've already donated I know loads of you have I really appreciate it go there again and please share the page Nico served with the British Army he served with uh, South African uh, uh, security services and um, so he spent a lot of his life looking after people now he lo- he's looking after himself charliecharlie1.com forward slash nico n-i-c-o thank you for that thank you to the sponsors on to the podcast my guest today is james cameron james served with the royal tank regiment he left as a major he served in afghanistan and other places and he has since founded the military charity mission motorsport and also Mission Automotive. Really enjoyed this chat. We chatted about um, the charity sector, the 4,000 plus charities are in existence. Uh, we chatted about um, Afghanistan uh, and all of the different aspects that come with doing a tour of Afghanistan, which was interesting to listen to because he's obviously armoured, Royal Tank Regiment, and I was obviously power edge, so on the ground. R- really fascinating, different perspective on things for me, and I'm sure it will be for you. You will enjoy this podcast. My name is Hugh Keir. This is a HR podcast with James Cameron. Enjoy. <laughs> right, right on the uh, James Cameron. Hi. Carry on what you're saying on the subject of valiness. Yeah, you've just given us these 
Thanks very much. So I've got a mouse mat, which actually my son will love. But it's Alina Saves Lives. And I I just started complaining immediately. Cause, to who? Um, uh, so my operator, who was, uh, um, it was, is Turbo Bright Blake called um, Gary Joynson. Yeah. Um, he, Royal Tank Regiment, we sent him on the languages course because he, he was a bright, you know, he's a bright kid, uh, about to deploy, what was this, Herrick 13. So uh, pinged him off in order to go and do the long language course, which he went and did at Colchester and came back. And he spoke a different language, all right, but he was just talking shite. I mean, alliness and all of this. Fucking, oh, God. It was, a, it was a monstrous pain in the arse. So he just came back and he was banging on about a slightly different colour DPM. That we, a cry precision, this, that, and the other. So, oh, and it apparently made a difference. Different colour? Yeah, I don't know. Dif- he, he, he'd, he'd saved up. Because, of course, by the time you get to Herrick 13, we had some properly decent kit. Yeah. There was new stuff that was coming out all of the time. And you would, even during the course of the tour, you're getting extra things bolted onto you. I'm gonna, yeah. And um, and he, uh, uh, he'd actually gone and managed to find something that he could spend his own money on that hadn't been issued, which was a... Uh, uh, a dump pouch so why you would need a dump pouch as an operator of an armoured vehicle <laughs> it was oh when you say operator you mean he drove it no, no radio no. operator yeah so he's the radio op so yeah. he's front left seat guy so we're in Warthog which is a, like a larger version of Viking I think a lot of people saw Warthog you know did a uh, did a spell right at the end of the Afghan war um, and um, yeah he had, he had this dump pouch on his thing but it, it was very important that it wasn't um uh, it wasn't MTP. It was it was cry precision. Apparently that was cool. But every time he sat down, we gently unrolled it behind him and then filled it with rocks. And he'd and he'd have to stand up and move, and of course just find himself tethered down by this land anchor that we that we would do. And it, it was it was just joyous, absolutely joyous. So thank you for my Alanis saves lives. I'm going to Gary. One of these is for you, mate, because um, you'll you'll absolutely love that stuff. Cool. But thank Happy you. I'm, I'm very grateful. Cry, cry stuff is good, though, mate. Yeah. Because it's expensive and it's, yeah, it's Gucci, ex- isn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's like people turn up wearing tap dancers' boots. And he's just like, those are. No. Well, this is the thing with Ali. This is the thing with Ali. Right. Yeah. This is the thing. Pe- people don't like. Did you see that article I did? Yeah. Right. <clears throat> okay. Now, some, there's a lot of that speculation on the history of it. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is with Ali, people think. Oh, if it if it's cool or if it isn't issued. No, no, it's like a mul- it's like a the, the, the meaning now. It's a, it's a multitude of things. A, it's it's yeah, like it, an onion, isn't it? Well, a dump pouch, like your man there, dump yeah. pouch is cool, right? But if there's no if there's no point, what's the you know? It's yeah. like oh, no offense to your operator, mm. but in, 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 all again idea. Why have you got a? T- <laughs> it looks yeah. apart, but you know, it's like uh, it, it was brilliant for filling with like random items. So we used it, you know, sort of rubbish things like that. You'd look round, you'd have some gash in your hand. And rather than wing it, you think, right, where's where's Gary? And just, <laughs> just <laughs> so he'd find dumpout. all sorts of stuff in the back. It, it was it was it was absolutely joyous, mate. You uh, you reminded me on the phone earlier when we were arranging this because like, I had forgotten all about it. I had forgotten <laughs> two things: caffeine machine down the road, mission yeah. motorsport, but more yeah. importantly, the Tony Lewis uh, connection. Yeah. And the West Wales connection. Yeah, I completely forgot about. It. I'm glad you. I'm glad you. Because if you hadn't reminded me, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't come onto it. No, he's. Um, yeah, well, Tony. I mean, there's an extraordinary human story behind all of that, um, which uh, which is incredible. And 
Uh, and it's funny, isn't it? You know how you'll have a moment in time which can then change a course of events, which which will just set things in an entirely different way, and you'll end up going down a very different path. And uh, I think that tour, Herrick thirteen, and we sort of spanned a bit into the next one, um, had quite a profound effect on me. And I came back and really wanted to do something in order to help the people that I'd seen affected by by that tour and by military service, a sort of broader piece on that. And, of course, Tony and family were also responding just to, to absolute tragedy. And But he has also... Oh, it was the same tour, wasn't it? Yeah. It was the same tour, yes. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah. Um, then he'd, he'd also turned himself to uh, looking at where in his professional capacity could he also make an impact on on those lives of people um you know people whose lives have been affected by by that sort of thing through 353 and through other things that he's been able to sort of touch along the way and um Westway you know and that's 15 dealerships um they're owned by Nissan GB um so it's a, a sort of manufacturer owned dealer network but one which which Tony's the managing director of and a bit of his enthusiasm and his love finds its way through into every single one of those dealerships so um he um uh his sponsorship of things like this and and also things like um the the british army's parachute display team all come down to you know those something that happened on on the other side of the world you know sort of northly long wearway um but it brought us together again as well again when, again did you know him before him? Did you? yeah we'd sort of um no not particularly um but we'd sort of met a few times um uh following uh herrick 13 um but it was um uh the work which the charity which i now run um uh was doing which all about putting guys and girls into careers helping them to support their families after the military um we launched a, a really big initiative called Mission Automotive. So to take it from uh, the charity's work to being much broader across the whole of, of UK automotive, and that's an enormous industry. I mean, last year was £82.5 billion turnover. Let's see what it is next year. Um, but uh, uh, that's an awful lot of people. It's about 850,000 people are employed directly by the automotive industry in the UK uh, in, the different, uh, in different bits of it. And... A lot of service leavers and veterans struggle to uh, find their way across into what they can do as a civilian and and either don't end up where they could be or end up underemployed because they, they've struggled to articulate exactly those qualities that make them desirable and those transferable skill sets. I mean, there are very few jobs in civilian street um, uh, sniping, but there are lots of jobs in civilian street for snipers. It's just relatively few of them involve dropping people quite a long way away. Um, but, uh, y- you know, you don't know that when you're serving. I think, you know, if we look back to how we, how much we've learnt since, you know, that time bouncing around Afghanistan, you know, when we were both in service, um, to how much you learn afterwards about how the world goes around, how commerce works, what civilians do for a living, what makes them tick. Um, you look back and you sort of think, gosh, you're really naive. And a lot of the things that worried you then, or that you were afraid of, or insecurities which you had about yourself, 
you suddenly realize that actually those just weren't things at all. And actually stuff that you were really proud of in service is a huge strength afterwards. Um, but you never really recognized at the time that it would be. Um, so when we came to launch Mission Automotive, um, we, uh, I mean, we've run Jaguar Land Rover's Armed Forces Engagement Scheme. You know, we, we helped deliver that big initiative. And that's put over 1,000 veterans into employment, 1,038 at the time of, uh, you know, so that, those, are, those are pretty good figures. And that's since um, uh, beginning of 2015. <clears throat> it's really since the first Invictus Games. Um, so we've learned an awful lot from doing that and rolling that out across a bigger stretch of industry. And Tony was one of the, the first people that we kind of thought of and said, look, we, we need to represent a broad swathe of industry and we don't have anybody who's particularly in retail. And I think there's a really, really compelling story for them to tell as well about their sponsorship of things like this, about their sponsorship of things like the Red Devils, to go, you are having a positive impact on that armed forces community through um, uh, what is a commercial concern. It's not owned by the government, you know, it's not, um, uh, ultimately it has to answer to, to the people who own the company. And uh, uh, and you're managing to link it and you're managing to do something that's really lovely and others should learn from that as well. And Tony, bless him, agreed with us. So, you know, when we launched Mission Automotive back on the 1st of March into 2019, so, I mean, that initiative is about, you know, what is it, sort of 10 months old now, a bit less. Um, uh, it was uh, It was with one of his cars that's covered in, you know, Red Devil's sponsorship stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and that initiative has just grown, um, grown and grown since then. Um, and it, it just it, it brings me an awful lot of pleasure when you can kind of shine a light on something like that. And you go, oh, you know, they're selling cars. You know, and it may well be they're selling cars that you don't like. And that kind of colours the way that you perceive things. There's that bit of the, the automotive industry that's, that's trying to flog your cars, you know, whether it's an Arthur Daly kind of, kind of way that people look at it yeah there are people like that in the industry but there's also people like tony lewis and uh yeah and uh to be able to shine a light on that and go this makes a difference and other people should do things like this i think is something that i'm quite proud of being able to have have done for the last sort of six months or so yeah you're right it's um it through it's through tony and and like yourself and people like steve thornton as well from uh from forces cars has obviously been on it's it's opened my eyes to uh, look, look, the, the, the the spectrum of the types of people across military veterans is exact is exactly the same as the types of people you get across like Sith Pop. You get yeah people who aren't asked to Both people who get chuck everything in. You get people who aren't that uh, mm. uh, morally uh, mm. morally well guided as other people, and then you get the likes of Tony mm. Lewis on the other end. You know, yeah, absolutely. And through Tony, the the, the people I'm being exposed to. It's really refreshing because yeah. of that honesty in it. And, and I've also been involved with the 353 Trust, both directly and through friends. And again, it's reflective of, of Tony himself, just mm. uh, the energy and the time he puts into that stuff. Mate, he's the MD of Westminster Sun, you know what I mean? Mm. And he still Busy chucks all of his spare time, most, mm. a lot of his spare time. There's some golf in there, mate. Yeah, there That's, is. <laughs> a yeah. lot of his spare time into how to help veterans. How, 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 how does he go about it? Yeah, you know, yeah. th- from his from his own past, from obviously the tragedy of uh, Conrad, and then from just being a, a part of that wider network. Now it's just, it's amazing. So it's, it makes me really happy I, I, with the sponsorship side of things. Mm. I I we, me I've discussed it with the missus before. It's like I would hate to have 
a sponsor I, I, I'm not invested mm. in, I don't believe in, you know, and I've got... It's got to have a, meaning. 100% mate. Yeah, totally. I've got West Minister and I've got, you know, Rugby Heroes. It yeah, couldn't yeah. get any better. It no. couldn't get any better. But um, tell me about, tell me about Mission Automotive. and Tell, tell me about where that started, mate, if you don't, if you don't mind. So, um, well, I mean... In fact, of, no. In fact, no. No. For the benefit of the listeners... There you go. Who did you serve with? When did you serve? Uh, so I joined the Royal Tank Regiment um, uh, straight after university. So um, uh, I uh, got posted across to Germany in the late 90s and spent a chunk of time bouncing around on tanks, um, generally being uh, drunk and incompetent, I think. It probably best sums up my time Off as a... Duty. As a mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but you know I mean that's kind of your job though really yeah particularly as, you know young officer um <laughs> I, re- it, I remember being in charge of Senalaga Pony Club uh at one point I think that was one that was a secondary duty that was a particularly plum one that I was particularly proud of and I think I'm, I managed to fuck that up <laughs> quite quite especially there were some very disappointed um young girls and uh uh, senior officers' wives, who then wrote stone letters about about uh, Second Lieutenant Cameron, who was clearly a fuckwit. Um, and uh, I spent I spent a chunk of time doing that, so I kind of learnt the armour piece. And then um, I did a Cyprus tour, so I did a bit of a United Nations, a uh, bit of United Nations time, and then um, was back at the Army Foundation College at Harrogate, actually when that place was reopening. Um, so it didn't look like it did now. This was kind of the old site that they managed to, <laughs> that they repainted. But because it was the MOD, they repainted it on the day in September that every daddy long legs in Yorkshire <laughs> came out of the grass and then stuck themselves to this freshly wet paint. <laughs> and then the next day the place opened and the whole place just looked like, you know, it was um, yeah, it was lightly feathered because there's just everything had, had daddy long legs is stuck to it. And that, that was fantastic. It was a bit of broadening for me as well. I had a, um, uh, I had a mostly infantry training team, and uh, <clears throat> and that was a bit of a joy. And a platoon sergeant who was a bloke who, who I just looked up to so much. I learned a ridiculous amount from him. Um, a guy called Rich Carter, who's um, who was Duke of Wellington's. And funnily enough, had I been in an infantry regiment, that would have been the one that I ended up in. So I'm from Leeds, and and they they were. There were our sort of local mob, the one that the school CCF, I think, was affiliated with. And he was ace. He was absolutely mega. And I think, actually, there was a point where I was going to get out of the army and may well have left at my three-year point, but but there was a bit of education that sort of went on. And so and I came back to the regiment. The regiment was doing weird things at that point um, and was off um, uh, doing this horrible joint NBC regiment job. Thing. This is kind of Cold War stuff going on, like training and anticipation going on in that stage. Yeah, no, so a ton of that. So I'd done all sort of Batis and Canada and um, uh, and a Poland as well. So the, you know these big these big exercises on armour, and then ended up and had this had this really extraordinary period because I had an environmental sciences degree, so I ended up understanding um, more than you'd probably like to let on. Um, but then that got me doing a series of really interesting stuff, working with really interesting different agencies. Um, bouncing about the place, and uh, and of course you know you then had September the 11th, and so um, uh, by December 2001 I was I was in Kabul, um, 
doing some some really creative things. And then Iraq, three years later, so I spent a chunk of time doing that. What do you mean creative? Can we, can we talk? Can we go on that? Yeah, no, we can. Um, so sort of rolling back the clock and thinking about, you know, when we put British troops into Afghanistan um, in the wake of this Al-Qaeda attack and uh, the whole weapons of mass destruction thing was was a particular concern. Um, we we were running a light roll team, which basically was a thing which which we made up um, of of a bunch of guys who were very technically proficient, with very good links back to the likes of Port and Down and some of the supporting services in the UK, and some interesting things that were in theatre and also um, in some of the surrounding countries, and went looking for a number of things which were of concern when you suddenly put Brits back into the middle of Kabul. And, you know, the intelligence services have a list of, you know, these are um, things that we're particularly interested in, concerned about, all the rest of it, uh, some of which might be because there was intent, other things because they were bloody dangerous. And so uh, we ended up um, finding and securing a Cobalt 60 source, which was a dirty, great big radioactive source. It was used for medicine so it was used for radiotherapy in kabul yeah right in the middle of kabul um on the old uh university hospital site which um was really quite exciting you know so you know doing stuff like that and i obviously managed to do it sufficiently competently between me and the rest of the team and have my metal mug down my trousers to have kids subsequently so it went okay but when you're calling in the International Atomic Energy Association into you as a young captain, you know, um, uh, in in the middle of Kabul, and you know, and you're bringing people in by Antonov, you know, and you're popping in and out of Pakistan in an Illishin in order to, you know, sort of get random stuff like a fridge that we need to buy. So yeah, let's let's, let's pop out to Pakistan to go and get it, and hitch to lift in an Illishin to do it. It is some pretty kind of cool stuff. So actually, I found myself really enjoying that sort of weird second phase. And then um, long, you know, post-staff college and a bunch of other things, I then came back to regimental duty. Uh, so I commanded at the 1st Royal Tank Regiment and then was, was incredibly fortunate to be asked to come back and command at the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment who were lining up in order to go and do this armoured tour. Um, and Warthog was this urgent operational requirement that was brought in to replace Viking. And I've got a um, had, had a history in doing um, sort of technical acquisition kind of things, um, and so I just happened to be the right sort of bloke at the right time. All the rest of it, and was incredibly privileged to take over a you know a bunch of guys at the start of their. Uh, we actually did, I actually did full armoured batters. I hadn't been on tanks for an awfully long time, so um, I had to go and do a. I actually had to go and do a conversion course to convert me onto Challenger Two, and they'd stopped running that course four years previously. So that's how. <laughs> That's how out of date on armour I was, um, and uh, uh, and then bounced out along with sixteen brigade on onto onto Herrick thirteen, and yeah. I so that's with bags then. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> what did you say like that for? Oh no, well he, he's a joy. He was never actually one of mine. He's um, mate. I love bags. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah well, he's based with three powers. I think with B Company. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Where were you then? He was, so, well, bouncing about all over the shop. So, um, well, wherever the war talks were, really. So I was I was bouncing in between 
So I had two main troops, one of which was in Babaji. So it was, you know, chucking around in that area. Average engagement distance is, I don't know, 75 yards, something like that. You know, folk climbing up the bar armour at times. You know, that was all quite exciting. And then out in the desert on the 611 in between, uh, on that road building effort that was Peace Street, as they called it, which was ludicrous. There was building this road up to Sangin. Um and it was directly through what the Taliban had firmly considered to be theirs, as everyone else had kind of vacated it. You know, um, that, that sort of pit of snakes that was. Was this where you had the encounter with the uh, the the uh, what would you call it the, uh, the Taliban Hell's Angel? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yeah because they'd use yeah. Well, basically, you're fighting a manoeuvre war, um, and I think one of the big problems around. I mean, you know, Viking. It was tragic the number of people that we had lost um and it was because it was being successfully targeted so um it it was not brilliantly um well it was it was pretty rubbish against ieds um but then so are boots you know Um, so what do you do you try not to set the things off but i think um the taliban have been very successful at reducing our will to maneuver and Warthog came along, built for theatre, you know, much, um, uh, certainly much better blast attenuation and things like that. It's still a rubbish day if one goes off underneath you. And so all of the same kind, same kind of um, restrictions would really apply. But because we changed the name and because actually um, 16 Brigade, you know, you've got a brigadier who's not afraid of trying interesting and new stuff. You've got Chief of Staff, who I went through Sanders with. Was it Giles? Was it Giles then, the brigadier? No. Who was that? No, was it not? James Chisholm. Oh, uh, uh, no, I can't remember. Anyway, go on. There you go. And, um, and, a, and a Chief of Staff who was, who was absolutely brilliant and knew me of old. And, uh, and had the trust to be able to go, yep, yeah, all right, you know what you're doing, off you go. Um, uh, off we went and instead of being based in Bastion we just went out and didn't come back in again um, uh, you're working very closely with the infantry in um, in Babaji in the close in the close territory you know of Helmand River Valley uh, but in the desert there's there was only us you know there were no bases there was nowhere to hide behind there was nowhere you we went on a night time you put the wagons in a circle and um, uh, and you moved every night how many wagons were there? Uh, well, the the troop that was out there. So I think in total something like thirty six. So divided in between two troops and a uh, an attack group, which was sort of my five five warthogs, with an incredibly high quality bunch of people. You've got five of these of these things, and they're amazing. Um, and that's an awful lot of that's an awful lot of war that you can take. So when you turn up, it makes a difference. What and was the what was the weapon systems on them? Um, a mix. So you had. Um, I can't remember. I can't. Well, you had fifty cal, GMG, so the grenade launching thing, um, and good old fashioned GPMG. And actually, GPMG was the weapon of choice. Um, Why is that? Because it you could be an awful lot more subtle. You could use it with much less worry about collateral. When you pulled the trigger, it worked, and that's a huge thing. Because they're very exposed, you know, on the top, just in dust all of the time. You know, you can't, you, um, you can't kind of mothball it. So when when it you wanted it to work, it it had to work, and you could be and you could be really quite precise with it. 
um, uh, within the range of a beaten zone. But funnily enough, you know, one of Bags's mates, um, uh, one of my young troop leaders, was out in the desert when uh, something was firing at him on the horizon, and um, they could see the flash of this thing firing. So fired back and could see that the rounds that he was firing were falling short. So, you know, GPMG, beating distance, about 1,800 metres. So, all right. So let's drive towards... Yeah, 1,800 metres if it's in the SF position, but not if it's... On a... Yeah, well, it's a turret mount, so... Oh, OK, yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, pretty yeah. good. So yeah, it's, sorry, yeah, and yeah. it's a nice elevated... Yeah. It's, pretty, it's yeah, a pretty yeah, good yeah, platform. Yeah, yeah. So fired, fired back, but it's falling short. So, right, OK. So let's motor towards it. So he motored towards this thing that was firing at him. Took him a couple of goes before he got there. And we worked out um, he'd driven three and a half Ks, and the thing that they were firing at him was a towed anti-aircraft gun. I can't remember this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like talking to him about it afterwards, and like, you know, were you not questioning you're driving towards the thing which is shooting at you for three and a half kilometres? He's like, yeah, I really want to, I really want to hit it. <laughs> and they they'd just been very lucky, you know. So they had a couple of jerry cans that they found some very large caliber holes in, um, and then rolled back, looks at lots of clever mechanisms of going who was where when, and discovered, yeah, I know this thing. Um, and it's because we were reducing the Taliban's manoeuvre. So they'd rolled back this road-building crew that had its own security force of 800 people, um, and, they'd, uh, and they'd, they'd launched a, a deliberate attack against them and done some pretty horrid things, you know, lined them up and then shot them all within the view of the next. Cause they oh, were, really? They basically made these little forts dotted down this road-building thing so that they could maintain constant eyes on. And they just rolled them back one by one, all the way up to the one. What, just the killing one. the people who were building it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we sort of, you know, came along and, um, and lived in the desert for um, quite a long interrupted period. I forget how much it was now, but there was a bit of a sort of big deal made about it at the time because... You've got lads who were who were properly out. There was no Hesco for them to hide behind, and we were moving location every night. And in order to be able to do that, you've got how do you logistically supply that? So I went back into uh, Lashkar into the headquarters. Um, I used to quite enjoy going in there because you've got a lot of blokes who are basically my peers who are staff officers. You know, so these shiny bottom desk jockeys, you just love going in and calling darling. You know, you roll in all windswept and interesting, covered in stuff. And we caused a bit of a fuss when we turned up and you drove into a um uh you drove into a uh it's like an airlock um where you get into. So they open the outside gate, you drive in, they close that in order to then release you and you drive inside. Um it's pretty obvious if it's a war talk, you know, that you're not a you're not somebody masquerading or something bad. So it's normally a bit of a formality, you roll straight through. And we drove into the airlock and um and there's just no sign of anyone. So the other gate didn't open, and we just sort of sat there going, oh, I thought, come on, you know, I need to be in, I need to be in this, I need to be in this O group. And uh, uh, so you're like, right, press to transmit, but you've already dropped the antennas because you have to drop the antennas when you're going into it. It's like, that doesn't work. So oh, this is bloody silly. So I get out the top of the wagon and looking, just trying to find somebody, and look down at the front and went, oh, we've got a, we had an RPG stuck in the, in the bar armor. <laughs> In the front, we had a bit of a dust up on the way there, but nothing, you know, it's just standard day, isn't it, in Helmand? You know? <laughs> and we we hadn't noticed, so uh, but unfortunately, the people in Lashkar had, so we we caused a bit of a yeah, sorry about that, chaps. <laughs> <laughs> first. 
let the bomb dispose guys go and go and deal with it. In the meantime, I sort of wandered in, you know, sort of, like, how are things here? And everyone's looking at me like I'm nuts. But um, I went and found the guy who was um, who was sort of SO2 Logistics and said, um, uh, it's getting it's it's difficult to sustain operations out there for fuel as much as anything else. So we talked about there was a bunch of things that we could deliver in different ways. Packed fuel is an absolute nightmare if you get that delivered. So we were getting resupplied by Hercules that was coming over and, you know, doing the old pallets out the back and dropping stuff to it. It was great with water and rations and things like that, but packed fuel is a nightmare. Um, and, you know, it's a pain in the ass for the boys, all the rest of it. And then you've got a million jerry cans you've got to work out what you want to do with. Um, so uh, I came up with a brilliant idea and said, um, uh, I want the fuel tanker that's at, um, and it, it wasn't at price. They moved it forward to make it a bit more convenient for us. And it was, uh, it was a little bit further along the road in, um, uh, at a, at a checkpoint. Uh, and I said, um, well, I basically, I'm, I want that fuel tanker. I'm going to go and take it out. And they said, well, where are you going to take it? And I said, well, you know, into the desert where we are. And they went, well, how's it going to get back again? And like, well, it'll stay with us. And we're like, well, how, how does that work? How are you going to do with a fuel tanker? And go, look, you, you've seen, um, oh, what's the Australian film? You know, Tina <laughs> No, not Mad Max. Mad Max. I said, you've seen Mad Max, haven't you? <laughs> and the bloke's looking at me, and he can't work out whether I'm serious or not. And in the end, he just sort of laughs about it. And I'm going, no, I'm deadly serious. We want to, you know, we'll go and take it out and look after it. And, uh, so they're not armoured, though, are they? No, they're not, no. No. <laughs> No, so we sort of put it in the middle. It was fine. And we had a bunch of, yeah, household cavalry guys there as well, so we had some scimitar and stuff out with us at the time. And it turned into quite a big and interesting thing because the Taliban had brought out this high-value weapon, anti-aircraft gun that they were firing, you know, at us. It was five and a bit K. Because we were really pissing them off. So we're like, yeah, this is great. It's really good. So let's let's try and tease that out. Um and it's amazing, you know, when you then have that focus of attention switches onto onto that. I had a troop leader, you know, this lunatic driven driven towards it, Andrew Max, just a great kid. Um Officer or NCO? Yeah, officer, yeah. yeah. So uh yeah, he was a yeah, he was a lieutenant. So a uh, same vintage as bags, I think. So, you know, to give you yeah, one of them. It's a good vintage. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, yeah, they are. They they're they're absolutely fantastic. But um but you know, and then then of course his OC would tip up me with an extra five, with an extra five wagons, and that uh, uh, and then a whole load of other assets and and a you know forward air controller and a whole host of things you know. So we then have the world all looking in on this bit, um, and uh, and of course there's no sign of the thing. So you're going well, okay, let's how can we how can we push the buttons in order to get them to bring it out. We spent a very exciting two weeks pressing buttons in order to get the, the Taliban to bring it out. Was it a Z issue? And then snotting it, yeah, yeah. Took four or two? No, it, no, it was... You've got 23-2 and 23 one. You've got one of the two, two, no. you got two uh, barrels and the four barrels. They're, those are beasts, mate. Yeah, it's a big thing. And the beating, a, the beating zone on that was about, was about a K. <laughs> it is, and, and particularly when they're firing it flat, basically. Yeah, they, they, were, in, uh, they were in Kajaki, and uh, the police used to use it. I mean, he's... We used to see, don't use the ZSU because they'd open up with this to trying to hit a couple of Taliban, yeah. and but they'd end up, you know, the beating zone was like it wasn't a cave, it's was like five hundred meters. Yeah. So these rounds is going anti-aircraft gun trying to hit things on the ground horizontal. It's just disaster, and it's, disaster. And it's, and it's yeah, what's behind there as well because that it doesn't exactly, stop. Yeah. They don't well, stop. Those well, we things. were on the we were on the hill 
So you could see where it was going. You could see where the rounds are going. They couldn't see it because they were level, you know. <laughs> I mean, they'd yeah, those guys. Well, they'd the the bad guys had wiped out about one and a quarter million quid's worth of road building kit and stuff like that. So, and and completely mucked up the project. And of course, they laid IED. So as you were going back out again, and and you're just playing this sort of this this cat and mouse game of escalation of you know we we twigged they were laying they were laying ieds directly in our um in our tracks because we we would tend to use we would tend to use the same tracks and we'd figured out that they'd figured out that they were doing that and they were they were laying there so you then you'd avoid those and you then go parallel to them so they then started laying off why would you use the same just out of interest because that's different to the foot tactics why would you use the same tracks it it depends so it completely depends. So it depends how much observation you've had on it and how often you're going. Yeah. But to be able to return and go, IEDs could be anywhere. We passed by this way earlier today. We've had pretty good eyes ever since. So where's the safest place to go? Yeah, yeah. And you've got to take a gamble. Do you go, I'm going back up what I know is approved route and hoping that no sly bug has been in there in order to lay something in your absence? Or do you go, I'm going to roll the dice again and roll across a fresh piece of desert? Um, and that's, that's quite interesting. We, but they, they were doing some really interesting targeting of us too. So they, they had some quite sophisticated stuff that was double um, pressure plate because obviously ECM can protect you an awful lot from, from stuff which has come from, from the side. It's difficult to run a wire for any length of dis- distance in the open desert, unlike in... So you have two troops that are learning completely different lessons one really close contact and the other open desert they're getting shot at from uh, five and a half k's away um, so so was the desert was the one in the dash was that shadowing the one in the close the close quarters yeah and they well um uh, and you're seeing very different tactics and all the rest of it because they're two very different bunches of talent that you're fighting but they're in mutual support of each other right yeah yeah, yeah okay, no yeah, absolutely and yeah, then yeah. and then me and tag group bouncing in between the two and you're sort of going from sublime to the ridiculous or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to find the, um, oh, yeah, ZPU. So 14.5 millimeter. Oh, ZPU. Okay, right. Yeah, so towed wheels on the side of it. Yeah, got you. Yeah, big chunky thing. Um, anyway, we got it. It was all right. It was so, you know, sort of strange looking back on it. And people go, well, gosh, you know, you ever get that when you're a civvy? And they go, well, you know, at least no one's shooting at you. you know, that was the fun bit. And they forget completely. You spend all your time training and someone's shooting at you and that's when actually life becomes really, really clear, simple, straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. And you know exactly what you're doing, exactly where you're placing things is. And it's a it's a rush, it's a buzz and you're surrounded by the finest of people who you know would do exactly the same thing that you would do for them. And that's that's an incredible feeling and you don't really get that, you know, sat in traffic on the M40. Um no, that simplicity is a is a huge one. It took me a while to realise that that's what a, that's one of the things I was not, not missing, but one of the one of the things that um, has such a big impact on people when they leave because it's been taken away, but they don't realise mm. it's not what it's not what they've been introduced to. It's what they haven't got anymore. <clears throat> that simplicity of being on tour. Mm. Yeah, you know, are we, what, I wish I was back in Afghanistan. I wish I was back in Iraq. And you think, well, why? Well, Sounds it, ridiculous. And you, yeah. and you see, and people assume, oh, the, adre- the buzz, the adrenaline, you're doing the, do the shit, get it, nigga. Mm. Well, that's, that, that may be it, maybe slightly part of it. The mm. bigger part is, like you say, very, very simple. Yeah. You know exactly where you, you know exactly where you stand in life. You know exactly what you need to do. 
Yep. It's everything is everything is clear cut. Clear cut. The heart in the like since I left, when I one of the harder I'm gonna off track here, but it's an interesting point you brought up. And this is a recent sort of revelation to me. The times I I find um so just normal work. Mm-hmm. Times I find it a bit a bit what 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 the fuck am I doing? Mm-hmm. Is when there's ambiguity in what I'm doing. It's, yes. it's like, okay, I've been given I've been given a task, for example, but it's a bit ambiguous what that task is. And yeah. maybe I'm working with other people. I'm not it's not clear who I'm working to. It's not clear who's working for me. Yeah. It's just all of it. The time which is a shit. The times I'm on fire is when it's like yeah. QKIA, task. Off you this is yeah, use the parameters, go, bang. I'm like, mm. fucking right, get in there. I'll, I'll, and it changes my... I'll, mm. Next morning I'm up, I'm fucking up at 6 a.m., I'm good to go, and I'll, you know, just loving it. And that's just a hark back to what you said, the simplicity. I yeah. know where everything is, clear cut, I've got a task, I'm going to achieve it, I know what my objective is, I know what the end state is, I'm going to fucking murder this. No, well, I mean, people um, pay a fortune in order to go and learn about mindfulness. Yeah, I'll tell you about mindfulness. And being in the moment. <laughs> well, there isn't, there isn't room for worrying about your gas bill. Um, you are very much you and everybody around you. It's really interesting because, um, yeah, man. I mean, rugby for heroes, sports, anything like that. Because when you're on the field and somebody passes you the ball, you're not fucking thinking about anything else. No. Well, not for long. Because <laughs> no. someone's going to catch up with you. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why sport can be so fantastic. It can be so restorative and healing. Um, we run a 12-hour endurance race across Remembrance Weekend that the first time we we looked at doing that, I mean, that wasn't my idea. We, uh, I mean, I think I'd created the conditions for Anglesey Circuit to want to give us a weekend, but it was a guy called John Earp, um, helicopter pilot. IRP. Yeah, yeah, um, who now flies um, Air Ambulance Carnarvon, so North Wales. So he spends all of his time, you know, dodging Snowden um, uh, in clouds and side wings and things like that. And John John said, look, this is a fantastic opportunity. We should run a race there. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. I mean, yeah, a track day, yes. You know, perhaps let's do a bit of instruction for people. But in November, that's beyond the end of the season. Um, so it's a bit like going, well, you know, let's have... Uh, let's. It felt a bit like Guernsey launching a space program. It was. It was that <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and, aw- and away we went. Um, and the the first year we did it, um, you have this endurance motor race. We've got a load of beneficiaries taking part. We've got a load of proper racers who are there, touring car drivers. I mean, this year we just had Dario Franchitti, Marino Franchitti there. You know, I mean, this guy's won. He's won the Indy 500, you know, more than once. He's he's um, just a megastar, just loving it. And then you've got a whole load of club racers of guys who go and spend their own money and, and just enjoy sport, um, as we all do, coming and getting into the spirit of it. And we stop this race, put the safety car out, bring everything in, it all lines up, and we run a service of remembrance in the pit lane. So you've got a Welsh male voice choir. You're next door to RF Valley, so we've got the we've got the... Um, military wives choir out of valley and you've got 700 people compressed into the pit lane every marshal comes in off the marshal position locals come in in order to be able to do it and you you have a service of remembrance in the pit lane with a military padre you know gary birch who just got off the plane back from estonia literally grabbed his son and said come on we're going to wales and uh and you do this 
and the sun came out. It's come out on us every year. I don't understand why. I mean, it's 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 Anglesey in November, so every year at some point you get all of the weather. It absolutely shits it down on you. And I, you know, the marquee tries to take off and head for Liverpool and all the rest of it. It's, you know, but uh, at that moment, it happened the first year, and it happened and and it's happened pretty much every year since is that the weather just suddenly gives you respite and the sun was beating on our backs, you know, and you, you're, I'm just stood there in the silence, you know, that falling note of a bugler, thinking to myself, God, you know, I, this is incredible. And I also sort of had this sinking feeling of going, oh, I've got to do this every year now. (laughs) (laughs) It's never going to be, this is so good. And it's, and it's absolutely wonderful. And actually, I think the thing that moves me now, because I'm, I hadn't done a remembrance thing before. I had stayed away from church and wearing your medals and stuff like that. I, you know, and that was not something that I was particularly eager to rush towards. But it's so good. It's so good. Um, and you've got people there every year will take beneficiaries who have not been able to do something like that or would not have considered that they would have not felt that sense of pride, would not be willing to wear their beret again, putting their headdress on, putting their medals on, and supporting each other. Because, you know, in- inevitably, you know, it's difficult. Remembrance, it's, it's not just about what happened 100 years ago, that, you know, we don't have those old boys around to, to, to bear witness to that anymore. It's, it's now. Um, and it's much more current. The thing that gets me, because I've seen that and I'm kind of used to it and I'm doing my best to support a population of our beneficiaries through that, but it's everybody else who stood around too. So you, you've got all of these civvies who are just profoundly moved by this service of remembrance and they haven't necessarily had military service themselves. They might be quite distant from that and haven't seen it. But how many times in modern life do you st- Stand in perfect silence for two minutes where there is no distraction, where there's no phone, there's no notifications, there's no, there's nothing which you're allowing in order to be able to get into that space. And you're alone with your own thoughts in order to be able to do it in among 700 people who are all doing exactly the same thing at the same time. And that's incredibly powerful. And that's all about mindfulness. And you learn a little bit about yourself every time you do that. Um, and it's it's fantastic for us, you know, this band of brothers that's kind of grown around it, but but it suddenly expands. Every time we do that, you know, you, you make that circle a little bit bigger and you include a whole load of civvies and, you know, international racing stars who just, who just go, you know, I was talking to Dario long after the race and he was the guy who was in the car, so he happened to be in the car. Um, safety car goes out, he stops, he comes, he's stands with everybody else, he does the service, he has to then get back in the car and go and drive back out again. He said, I was two laps in, I was wiping the tears out of my eyes on the back straight because he was so profoundly moved. Um, Now, he's not done military service, but he's had some huge accidents in his life. He's properly looked at death's door and and managed to come back from that and built a family around it and all of those things which kind of happen. And he found it profoundly moving. It's absolutely gobsmacked and the joy of it is you know he's like going right we're coming back next year i'm going to bring a manufacturer i'm bringing bringing more friends with you you just see this thing growing and it's it it's uh it, it's quite extraordinary when you can do a thing like that i'm really proud of race of remembrance you know it's um 
it's something that's that's absolutely joyous and um and we use it in order to contribute towards the recovery journey of every one of our beneficiaries who's taking part that they're, they're all there too yeah they're doing race remembrance but that's not the point they're there too gaining confidence they're there to have their horizons widened they're there to um uh deal with things in their past they're all doing it in order to be able to meet recovery goals and we we're really upfront and open with them on it well we don't do motorsports at mission motorsport pretty much full stop we do motorsport in order to unlock things to take people on their recovery journey and actually help them um, it has to be about that. If you go and do something, anything, and it's about the thing, and you're using people who are wounded, injured, or sick, or have fallen off that ideal pathway of their lives, and you're using them in order to do the thing, you're missing the point. You do the thing in order to help the people. And that duty of care has sort of been at the core of everything we've done, really, since I came back, you know, frankly, twitching, you know, coming back through uh, Cyprus and decompression being reunited with some of our guys who'd been uh you know last time we'd seen them was going in the back of a chinook or into a into a black hawk to be medically evacuated you know and at that point you go yeah we 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 need to do something to help them and that's and that has been the the sort of founding principle of the charity and also our focus we turned down lots of things that might be commercially great or or would look really fabulous um, because our motivation for doing things is helping people, not not you know trying to attain some Everest of sports, whatever it might be. That's that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned about D- Dario. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. A, there's there's a good Scottish name, isn't there? Good Scottish name, Dario. Like uh, who's that? Hang on, who's that Scottish? Uh, Paolo Nutini. That's another Scottish name. Yeah, no, he's I Scottish, know. isn't he? Paolo yeah, Nutini. They absolutely are. There's this Sounds this wonderful sort of Italian <laughs> Scottish contingent. You go to Corby, and you, you know, is that? <laughs> and it's full of Glaswegians. <laughs> probably digressing. No, really D- go on, Dario, I mentioned, you know, he's he, uh, been in, uh, impacted profoundly by the you know remembrance and going back and racing and saying about the civilians coming together for the service and. You're absolutely right. What else does that? What else? You know, the two minute silence. What else brings people together from? Whatever background, whatever religion, whatever, it's about remembrance, right? And yeah. it's, and I, I used to shy away from, uh, not shy away, it was a more subconscious thing. I didn't go to the remembrance. Sundays, yeah. um, uh, I, I think I felt like a bit of an imposter because I wasn't dead. Yep. Uh, you know, it's like... Yeah, because yeah, guilt, uh, guilt's a thing, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, and I mean, just generalizing and... But as time gone, has gone on and the tours have gone on, the years have gone on, more people have been killed, I feel it's like a more responsibility to go and just pay respect. And yeah. uh, sometimes I'll go, it all depends, it entirely depends on how I feel at the time. November is a a, a difficult period for a lot of people, it a is. Lot, a emotional roller coaster. I also have a lot of other stuff goes on December, in November from family wise, right. all different things. Uh, and. And so it depends how I feel. You know, sometimes I'll go to yeah. remember Sunday, sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll go and I'll wear my medals and I'll, I'm a beret. Yeah. Other times I won't. This this year I went and I'd intended to go and wear medals and all the rest of it. And I ended up, through circumstance and through sort of choice, I went in uh, just a coat, I had a t-shirt on. I was just casual. 
but that's how I was comfortable in being. Yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't go to the parade. I spent elsewhere. It was in London, but I was yeah. I was casual and was comfortable with that. And that's how I was at. Be up here, my respects. But what's what's interesting? We were talking about there again, going back to Darius, and one of the things that I found with rugby heroes and through yeah. other things is we the our experiences our uh, our experiences when we're in when we leave through uh, our own hardships for other people's hardships and and what we experience of hardship in general whether it's ours or other people's mm. um we the lessons we learn are common to the lessons we learn are, are, can uh are lessons that can help anyone yeah. okay from whatever part of society you're from can, you know Civil or not, mm. uh, you know, male. I'm, or I'm married to one. Male, <laughs> I am. I'm not married to one. I've got a partner to one. Um, uh, so, so those lessons, I think, we we are very good as ex-military. We, we're very open. Okay. Anyway, regardless yeah, yeah. of experience, right? We, you know, we can. We're very, we're very talk shit to each other. We can mm. rip the piss out of each other. Mm. You know exactly. What you know it's ripping the piss. Yes. You know, water for ducks back for most people, not support company, right? Water, for, <laughs> water, water for ducks back. You know, each other's back. You, you oh, know, is that multiplicity? Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what's black. You know what's white. Okay, it's easier. And and yeah. so what makes it when people civilians come in and are invited into that community be it in anglesey for that mm. day right or be it any mission you know motorsport mm. mission or motor event rugby heroes a 353 event and mm. they're brought in they're treated by the military as if they're military in yep. conversation okay we're yeah. completely open they get ripped apart but it that it's a comfort thing they they become immediately a part they become immediately part of society yeah. they know exactly where they stand they're exactly okay there's no prejudice here yeah, there's absolutely. zero prejudice. Yeah, yeah. And no, so you're, you're getting ripped regardless. Yeah, I, and we don't really care. But on the but again on the mental on the on mm. the uh, the mental struggle side of things, it's a it's comfort mm. for them. And w- that's not to say we're any better than civvies. It just so happens we are part of a, 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 a yeah. tight knit community just through our career, you know. And civilians invariably are not. And, yeah, no, it's huge benefit in it. It's huge benefit. I, I think what's going on at the moment with uh, the veteran community and the mental health aspect yeah. is hugely important for veterans. But I think it's hugely, hugely, hugely beneficial for the wider society in yeah. terms of mindfulness, in terms of well-being, in terms of you're more aware of yourself. Not in a fluffy, like gay kind of way, but. Uh, you yeah, know, right, but yeah. I don't mean. Gay, I mean, gay. it's Thursday night, but yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> you, you you get my point. Yeah, no, completely. The um, there's a there's a really there's a really big overlap, and I think we've we've also there's been so much change. I think since the likes of 2010, um, where the defence recovery capability starts to be stood up. So this weird agglomeration of different charity things with MOD helping gay was the wrong choice of word by the way yeah no, 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 just, that's okay. just, 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 just go on mm. <laughs> i'll deal with it later <laughs> good work yeah sorry. the um <laughs> that saves lives as well <laughs> the the gayness it does gayness, gayness saves lives oh, that's yeah, the man. next patch mate gayness saves lives james cameron you get the patches there you there. awesome <laughs> that's it you heard, you heard it first <laughs> and then go on sorry for interrupting um and uh the <laughs> Well, that's it. We've gone off. We've gone off at a massive tangent now. But he, um, there's a there's a really interesting thing I think with the way that service charities and the MOD interact with each other. That it's almost unrecognisable now to that which it used to be. 
there used to be a very big division in between the two and that the the whereas the line between what is charity and what is MOD now is is blurred much greater and Can that's you been elaborate that, on that well that's been to the benefit of of those that have come through so um uh, if you uh if you are wounded on operations if you fall by the wayside during your military career you enter a system which is absolutely peppered everywhere by interaction with things which sit outside which aren't the MOD. And whether that's because you're going through Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is a proper big NHS hospital, but you know, you're gonna get visited by you're gonna get visited by the cake lady. You're going to be you're gonna be going on a um uh, on a, a course that's that's run and paid for by the Royal British Legion in order to reintroduce you to the kind of sport that might be available to you. You'll stay in a recovery centre where um the vast majority of that which is provided through that recovery centre has come about through Help for Heroes, for example. You will go and uh, enter a whole series of recovery sport that's delivered by a whole host of different people, and at its pinnacle you've got Invictus and uh, and all of those things that kind of sit around, and whether it's Royal Foundation or through Endeavour Fund. And so all of a sudden this sits outside an MOD budget. This sits outside what normally the chief of the defence staff would expect that this is his ballywick. All of a sudden, there's there's a blurring of those lines, both in between what is MOD and what sits outside, and that's only right. And that's why you see the new Office of Veterans Affairs aren't an MOD entity. They sit under the Cabinet Office. And they sit under the Cabinet Office because if you're going to look after veterans, you also need to be talking... And, you know, they're, they're no longer MODs. They now belong to Department of Work and Pensions, NHS, local government and so therefore you've got to have this pan-governmental way of looking after and way of helping them and it's why that office of veterans affairs is a cabinet office piece of work instead of uh, instead of sat within mod <coughs> um but interaction in between these entities is not is not something that traditionally used to happen and like any kind of change inevitably there have been some that have resisted it along the way and i think there's still some way to go in terms of how we um, how we really successfully interact and how we share in the success of each other's. So where a charity in the past would be very keen to identify this is one of our beneficiaries. I mean, that's... Yeah, I can think of so many examples of where somebody's held up as, a, as, a, as an exemplar. And I think that's... That can be so damaging um because they're not ours you're just privileged to be able to help them for a period of their life with an aspect of of their recovery and and actually if you map the route of any one individual it's been a whole load of different organizations that have contributed together in order to be able to sustain and bolster that individual and help them to wherever they need to go and all of those organizations are immensely privileged that some bloke at his time of need, has reached out, and it was them that 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 he reached out to, and accepted their their help. Um, not the other way around. There's something else that that military charities can tend to fall back into doing, which is they look for military solutions to the problem, and that's great, but it can be short termism. So, if a guy in Warwick has uh, is sad and has suicidal thoughts. And that's identified and flagged up in by whatever means. 
the service charities are brilliant at rallying around in order to be able to go, well, let's connect him back with, let's connect him with the caseworker, let's join him up with his with his veteran community there, let's link him back to his regimental association or ship or aeroplane or hotel or wherever it was that he came from. Um, and that's great, but ultimately that's only a short-term solution. You've got to take a step back and go, what was it about this individual and Warwick that wasn't meeting his needs? How is Why is he failing as a civilian? What's he not getting? And how can you help that community to reach out and embrace a bloke who's had an extraordinary gestation in order to be able to get there, who's had an incredible life experience? How can you use that in order to enhance the community of people who live in that, that place? And in turn... Give him what he needs in terms of meaning, of reason to get out of bed in the morning and uh, and a sense of purpose and all of those things, which which are the things that we all need in order to be able to sustain us beyond, you know, um, that hierarchy of needs. You, you've, you've got to feel loved, needed, that you have value, that when you wake up in the morning that you throw the duvet off and go and do something because, because there's some purpose behind it. Um, and if you look back and go every time he falls over you go well let's take you back to where you were then you're missing a trick you've got to be able to look forward and sort of span that that piece and it's uh, some do it better than others and you're starting to see collaboration becoming much much better i'm so proud of the work that the that we do through the confederation of service charities we just sit in a room discussing what's best for beneficiaries the confederation of service charities i've not heard of this go on mm, cobcio there they are and you, you're right; it doesn't it, it doesn't work. But they are the Confederation of Service Charities, C O B S E O, um, and they are an an entity which pulls together all of the different interests within the military charity sector. Um, uh, it, it, there's an old general of mine. So, funnily enough, when I was in Kabul the first time round, it was John McCall who was commanding. It was Op Fingal then, wasn't it? I think that was the that was the the first op. Yeah, Fingal. Yeah. And it was yeah, John McCall was was commanding things then. He's he's the uh, he's the head of Cobcio, trying to pull together this sort of ragtag bug of how many was it three and a half thousand service charities? But actually, many of those are trusts or cadet associations or Royal British Legion branches and things like that, as opposed to um, what we sort of traditionally think of as charities. There's a lot of there's a lot of charitable trusts and things which sat there too. Um, to coalesce and steer those and send them in the right direction. I think the interaction between those charities, so I sit on a couple of COBCO, they're effectively working groups, they're called clusters, and I'm such a child, it makes me snigger every time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, um, I'm deputy chair of the um, WIS veterans working group, so those are wounded, injured and sick, uh, veterans empl- with relation to employment, so helping people into jobs. And sat around the table, you've got all of the big players who you, who you would expect. And they're sharing information about what they do um, really openly with the others around the table. And to do that, you have to have trust and you have to have collaboration and you have to have the beneficiary's best interests at heart. And they do. And it always makes me wince because on social media, you'll always go people going, oh, you know, yeah, no, they're terrible, that charity. And normally one of the big ones, you know, they'll go, oh, <sighs> mate, breaks my fucking balls. It breaks my fucking balls, man. And and they may well have an individual instance of going, well, you know, um, my mate reached out to them when he was most in need and they, they said they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And you're like, hang on, you 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 went to a charity that doesn't do that. It's, it's not just that. It's not just that. It's yeah. this, right? 
a fucking charity is an organization, okay? Yeah. Uh, this is what a charity, they, they're like any other organization, yeah. okay? Especially the big ones with branches mm. everywhere. As, a, as a, an organization gets bigger, it becomes very, very difficult to yeah. maintain the quality you started off with. Whether that was shit quality when you started off, or yeah, whether it true. was brilliant, okay? Yeah, you're going to get morons. Like, you get in the military, you're going to get morons, you're going to get brilliant people. You're going to get, mm. you're going to get departments and teams that operate yeah. really badly. Yeah. You're going to others that operate really well. You're going to get a dickhead as a knob on the end of the phone and makes the wrong decision. You're going to get mm. an awesome person at the end of the phone and goes over and beyond what they're required to do. Yeah, Maybe they charity can't do it and they refer you to another charity even though they're not allowed to do that because they want to put them in their charity and need the money because the fund is going down, right? This is what pisses me off. It's like, like, um, is this thing about uh, an RBL, uh, an RBL um, Royal British Legion branch in yes. Suffolk somewhere, yep. which has gone down the pan? Um, money dramas, stuff that ended up. And, and because of that, they won't buy a poppy. Oh, oh fuck, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah, well, yeah, no, but at the same time, RBL are one of the people I, I've benefited from. Yeah, RBL think. are people who I know friends have benefited from. It's a fucking Royal British Legion. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, you know, you don't just disown them. And it's the same for the small charities. Yeah. You, there's a people complain about the amount of charities there are, yeah. right? I think it's over four thousand now, not three and a half. I think it's over no. four thousand now. And like you rightly said, trusts, yeah. charities, yeah. associations. Okay, they all fund of that banner. But funny enough, people yeah. tend to not look into the numbers and just yeah, of course, yeah. The prime, it's right? an easy one. It's an easy one to build. But to those do. little charities come about because people feel very strongly of about course. a personal experience through, like you said, yeah. someone to get the help needed from the RBL. Someone to get the help needed of H4H. Someone to get help needed from flipping the MOD. Yeah. Right, there's a gap. Let's plug it. And they start their own charity. Completely well-meaning. That's how these mm. all come about. When, in fact, it, it that's that's only happening because there's, there's no great solution, like you're saying. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of work he's doing to tie the charities in and talk to each other. Yeah. They're, they're all, all the honest ones. <laughs> mm. They're all amazing. They're yeah. all amazing. Yeah, Even yeah. the ones that get dragged across the coals, like combat stress. They're mm. all amazing in things they do. They've also all made mistakes. But yeah, that is just like companies, corporations. It's just how it happens. Just how it happens. The beauty of the charity sector is, uh, the, char- yeah, the charity sector is, we, there is potential to be able to pull in communication between them all, to be able to pull them together and, yeah. and, and better orchestrate it, which is not possible with a bunch of companies in the same industry. No, you're absolutely the same right. sector. For the benefit of all the charities. Yeah. You know. And it's, and it's things like Cobsio that, that, that do knit them together and, and help. I mean, the, the last thing, oh, I've, I've said it before, last thing I ever wanted to do was to start another bloody service charity. I was like, just a shit idea. I still think it's a shit idea. I mean, it's just awful. <laughs> it was the worst thing in the world. But I, uh, I was, I was really struck, having come back from Afghanistan in 2011, about an area of sport that I knew loads about. So I've got a real background in motorsport and instruct and do all of these bits and pieces. And there were some things which were being done with great philanthropic intent, all the best intent in the world but unprofessional delivery. And it was causing more harm than good. And when you've got a guy who's back on a ward at Queen Elizabeth's, getting extra bits sawn off him because he's contracted an infection, because there was no medical risk assessment in place, and instead the guy had gone, yeah, no, I want to go and do Dakar, so I'm going to go and do hill running and all of the rest of it. And he was off duty, so therefore, theoretically, he's not covered under the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme because he wasn't on duty when he did it. You're not helping him. You're, you're, not, you're setting back not just his recovery, but at worst, the potential, you know, how far he could recover. 
And unless you put their needs first and foremost, then then it's kind of the wrong way to go about it. And I felt really strongly about that and complained to MOD and just was met with a wall of, you know more about this than we do. Um, and motorsport was never considered to be a sport by the army until 2009. Um, it was done, I think things like the Armed Forces Rally Team was done under the auspices of training. And it was only when a civil servant put the brakes on in 2009 and it became recognised as an official sport. So all the things that the likes of rugby enjoy, where there's coaching structures and all of the rest of it and teams at different levels and very well understood practices for doing things in motorsport simply didn't exist. And so I was I was tasked to write a paper for MOD at the end of 2011, which made some recommendations. I tried really, really hard. When did you get out, by the way? So I, I Sorry, got out, just a quick one. Yeah, no, end, uh, end of 2012, beginning okay, cool. of 2013. Yep. And, um, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I was doing this as a, as a serving officer. Absolutely no intent of leaving or getting out and doing anything quite as ridiculous as that. Um, but went and visited. So I went and visited the ski team who were doing fantastic stuff. I went and visited Toe in the Water who were teaching people to sail on the South Coast. I spent a chunk of time with the likes of Martin Colclough and Help for Heroes just just absorbing how they were going about using sport as this incredible tool to promote recovery. And then asking questions about, well, how is this funded? And there's all sorts of weirdness. So if you do something which is single service, you can't have a team which is veterans and serving at the same time. But with a combined service team, you can. So, Really? Yeah. Why is that? Lord knows. I do, God knows. I don't know. Wellington made a decision at Waterloo and it's been carried on ever since. I have no idea. But it, And it's that mixing of public and non-public money that drives you down a certain path of, of kind of doing things. And you go, well, okay, so you've got to have a way of being able to get because if you reflect reality, you go, MOD is never going to pay for this to do it as well as it should be. So you've got to be able to bring money in from outside. And that means commercial or compassionate interest. Um, and then how do you handle that money? It has to be transparent. You've got to be held accountable to where that money goes. So someone gives you a quid, you, you've got to deliver against it. And that, of course, is the charitable structure. That's why it exists. You have articles and objects against which you're held accountable. So, uh, you know, it's the hard way to do it, and it's the long way around. Um, but that's why Mission Motorsport was formed as the Forces Motorsport Charity, because it was on behalf of defence. It was it was put in place by the British Army Motorsport Association that had the lead for um, delivery for wounded, injured, and sick, um, and started up on the 1st of March 2012 with a bank account of zero. So Mission Motorsport Charity, founded by yours truly? Yes, yeah, with a bunch of with a bunch of help from my friends, um, uh, both both inside the military and also outside. You know, just getting some help with commerce and things like that. Just had no idea about that sort of thing, and and lent on some some friends in order to be able to help us to kind of pull that together to get that right structure in place. Tony, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only I'd known. If only it would have been glad to take. Well, uh, Tony, Tony Lewis. Just going back, Tony Lewis is is an example yeah. of a small charity yeah. it, it, that operates per- perfectly. Yeah, I think you know. I, I don't without no, any bias at all. There's nothing I don't. Yeah, hey, he's no, a, yeah, he's a good-looking man as well. Hey, isn't he's he? a good-looking man. He's a good-looking <laughs> man. There's a, <laughs> there's absolutely no. There's, I've got this nothing against. I know, mate. I've got no dark. What? Are you, oh yeah. Don't. I've got no issue with. 
a charity someone wants to start a charity I yeah. have not you know it, it, it's the it's uh, my issue would be with the intent and the purpose behind it okay but who knows what that is yeah. but Tony's charity you know 353 Trust obviously named after 353rd uh, British person to be British forces person to be killed in Afghan Tony's son Comrade Lewis who uh, got killed seven long like three para. I knew him, fucking amazing dude. Did know him well by uh, the pleasure of um, yeah. I had him on my team for a particularly interesting uh, Whitehall, Whitehall level approved little lot that we did. And uh, I'm glad he had him on there. Um, I'm digressing. 353 Trust, which is Tony's charity. Again, which I and friends of mine have been beneficiaries of. I mean, that charity, mate, it's small in terms of structure, small in terms sure. of people. It's him and Sandy and a handful of others, right? Mm. And they, you know, people get referred to them. People get referred to them in whatever way, or they become across people who, who need assistance. They assist those people. Yeah. Job done. Yeah, okay? absolutely. They raise funding really subtly. I'm not saying this is what the way everyone should go about it. I'm just mm. saying this is how 353 do it. They raise funding really subtly um, through events that they do or through people who know Tony, know Sandy, know people who've been involved, yeah. and through things like the, the podcast we've read Absolutely. for them and stuff, yeah. like that, and Rugby for Heroes, you know. And they just, they, okay, there's a need. Let's meet the need. Done. What can we do next? There's a need. Here's what we can do because this is our funding. Done. Where's the next need? They, and it's deliberately kept like that. Yeah, yeah. The impact and the quality of yeah, of, of, of uh, assistance they give people are second to none. Yeah. As good as the big charities with all the money. You yeah. know, they both have their place. They both have their place. But going yeah. back, it's, it's a coordination thing. They absolutely do. And But it's also that, that knowledge of what others are doing as well. So you're not duplicating what's done elsewhere. You're not, you haven't got needless bureaucracy. Um, and that you're, you're not actually... You've just got to question your motives. So... And it's so easy to get dragged out of your lane. So um, we have beneficiaries who will come and identify with us because they might be massive petrol heads. And there's something that perhaps that clearly we can help them with, a training journey that will help them end up in employment beyond. And wounded engine sick guys, we've now over 200 are still in empl- um, have entered employment through directly coming through our team in order to then end up in jobs. Mission Motorsport and then on to Mission Automotive. Correct. So, well, Mission Motorsports, these are whiz guys that we've helped, guys and girls that we've helped, who they've found employment through. And that the measure of effectiveness, so rather than look at this sort of, you know, two weeks after you sprayed them in champagne, are they still, have they still got a job? Six months is kind of pointless because, to be honest, you're still in a... Uh, you're still kind of learning about what that employment is and you haven't got the full cover of employment law and things like that. So we look at the two-year point. So we go two years on, are these people employed? And we know that more than 84% of our beneficiaries are. A lot of the ones that aren't might not be because they've stepped out in order to be able to go and do something else. They might have entered full-time education. They might have decided that, no, that's it. You know, I've, I've got enough money coming in. I'm going to concentrate on the families. They might have made a conscious decision to do it as opposed to being back on the job market. Now, that's way in excess of, well, Department of Work and Pensions have a return-to-work scheme, which they look at the efficacy of at the six-month point. So they go six months after how many of these people are in work, and they average between 26 and 28% of people who go through that course are actually in work. So we're at 84 at the two-year point. Hmm. Now, that's actually higher than pretty much any other statistic that we can find as we're sort of looking around, you know, to, for, for regular people who are entering employment. So it's pretty strong. We know it works. But on the back of that, because you might have a employer who is 
uh, who's opened the door to it because of the wounded, injured, and sick thing. And it might be because, you know, something like Invictus Games. But it then gives you the access to their HR procedures and those levers. And it's really easy to make small changes, which suddenly open the gates to a whole bunch of veterans, service levers, spouses, who otherwise they wouldn't have seen or they wouldn't have attracted. Or if they had done, they would have accidentally filtered them out. Um, and that's what Mission Automotive is about. It, the Mission Automotive is helping a company to develop an armed forces engagement scheme that meets their needs. And for some, that's about HR. They need to hire new people. So you make sure that you're not filtering out blokes by degree, by prior industry experience. You make sure that when they read a CV, um, instead of just going, sniper, yes, I want one of those. They're instead looking beyond that in order to look at the qualities of the bloke. Because we're all culturally, we, if you've served, you're culturally disadvantaged from going through an HR process. HR is based on you talking about yourself in the first person. And when did you in your service career write about yourself in the first person? Never. You only ever write about others. And whether that's a course report whether that's a promotion report, whether that's your annual reporting, you never write about yourself. It's always writing about somebody else in the third person. And if you do refer to yourself, you don't say I, you say we. And, and that's it. And that's at senior NCO officer level. You go down below that yeah. to screw, well, uh, Lance Jack and below, they, they don't write about themselves or other people. No, so, and, and so they, again, that, that's a lack of understanding the language use, understanding about the word things, understanding of... And, and in that, right, about the people you learn about where your own qualities are, you talk about transferable skills. How good a sniper were you? I'm not going to answer that question. Were you, <laughs> were you better than all of your peers? Were you better than the blokes who went before you? Are you better than everyone who came after you? No. No, okay. So that's the first thing out of your mouth. Of course not, because that's a horrible thing to say and you just don't do it but the whole basis of writing a cv or performing well at interview is about saying <laughs> okay so the last job i did let's use any job that i've done as an example when i went in there i was so much better than the guy before me totally changed everything that he'd done and i was alongside a bunch of other people who were my peers and i was head and shoulders better than those guys and the blokes who worked for me would have been terrible had it not been for my inspirational leadership pulling them up by the bootstraps and the bloke who came after me, oh, you know, good luck to him. That's horrible. I mean, it's just, it feels wrong. But that is entirely what that um, first person talking about articulating yourself and picking out these prime qualities off the top, responding to interview questions where you talk about how you were the pivotal thing that happened. No, it was a team. It was us. We did it together culturally we find that really difficult to do and and that puts us on a back foot when you're entering a, a civilian hr process and and they don't want to be inarticulate they don't want to not speak your language they want to see the quality they're trying to do something which is really quite difficult that you go out to the outside world and you go Look, we want someone to fill this job but they'll write the job description inevitably in industry speak because in every industry you develop your own patois your own acronyms your own way of talking about things so um a jaguar land rover example you know you're offering a really really good job half of the northern hemisphere wants to apply for that job and a whole bunch of indians do as well so how do you how do you make a ridiculous number of applications uh, how do you 
get that down to a manageable number. So you put in place some fairly simple things. So no degree, no prior industry experience. And you're, if you think about your peers, how many of those have you just got rid of at a single stroke? And I, are you getting rid of people of no quality? No, you're, you're just getting rid of people who don't, don't have a degree, had a very different sort of upbringing. And instead, their higher education was one that, you know, was conducted in Sunnybridge and, you know, or on the parade square in front of, in front of Buckingham Palace. And that's of no less value. Um, and helping HR departments to have different tools so that they can make good decisions about people is is what we what we kind of help them to do. And when they get it, they really get it. Um, and Jaguar Land Rover, I think, are a glorious example. Since the launch of Mission Automotive, we're just really excited that we're doing a big piece of work with Toyota at the moment that's putting people into. So that's the eleventh largest company in the world. You know, the most is it really most profitable motor of manufacturer. all companies. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, have joined Mission Automotive. That's a fairly surreal, you know, that's a that's a pretty cool thing. And um we've a, a little three months into that, you know, we put eight blokes into jobs already. Both service leavers and veterans. So these guys who were lost looking for somewhere or underemployed beneath their potential have now got an employer and a pathway and a supported route that has removed many of the obstacles that were in their path and um and that's absolutely phenomenal and it's interesting because toyota one of their big big reasons for doing it is not about um so yes they need quality people of course they do um but it's actually about um also employee satisfaction and that's not just for the veterans who work for them it's for the people who work for toyota in the uk who are building cars in um um uh in you know, Derbyshire and Deeside and the people who are working in um, uh, across the retailers is that they see the company which they work for doing something that reflects the values that they themselves hold. And that's really powerful. That's very cool. And as a reason to kind of enter into it, and as one of the one of the metrics against which you're measuring things, that's um that's a lovely way for a business to go about doing it. Uh, we've added Volvo. Um, we as a result of last week, we had a really big event with the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders in London. And as a result, um, Lotus, who also, like Volvo, actually owned by Geely, Chinese company, um, have got some really ambitious plans. Um, and as you know, you know, lads, when they leave the military, will tend to go back to where the families are from and where that supporting structure comes from. And anywhere where you can point at in the world where the employment opportunities are more limited than than others are areas where you have struggle and if you know you're pointing at St Athan in South Wales where Aston Martin are you know going to be building electric Lagondas out of there in the new DBX oh. you look at Lotus in in Norfolk um, but any retailer anywhere um, regardless of where we get that phone call from or somebody says you know I'm, I'm moving back when I leave the Navy when I leave the Marines when I leave the Air Force I'm I'm going back to where the family's from we've got a pretty good chance of being able to line them up with someone something really cool um and that's that's really exciting um and what we've done is is we've articulated it for companies in a different way so there's no sort of set template that will will apply you actually come alongside the company and you spend a lot of time then understanding what their strategy is because if you're to help them develop their own armed forces engagement strategy it's got to be 
um, it's got to make commercial sense and it's got to be in support of their own strategy. And so they're all different. They're all different shapes and sizes. Um, and, uh, and that's been, been fantastic for us, talking to just, just companies of all different shapes and sizes, um, from single bloke startups all the way up to you know, the likes of Toyota, Tesla, you know, have some fantastic, really interesting challenges. Um, Even then, comms, though, yeah? Yeah, big time. And they've got a huge veterans program in the States. Tesla veteran, if you go and Google that, you, you just pull up an enormous amount of resources. Facebook's the, the same. Facebook's the same. Yeah. And they're trying to do it over here now. But it's not made its way across the Atlantic. Absolutely. So, so all right, we're fixing that. You and know, they are absolutely determined to go, yeah, this is important to us. Because as a car company, you know, they are different. And they do things in a different way. But things like the Model 3 coming along means they're suddenly, they're up against everybody, including the big boys. And you can only hide behind being new for so long. And when someone's poking you in the chest going, I don't like this, what do you stand for as a company? You can only hide behind, well, you know, we're new and it's all about EVs. You're like, look, I can go and buy an EV from lots of other places and you're not new anymore because um, you've, you've been around for some time. And that's when you as a company, you've got, to, you've got to have a set of values against which you stand by. And you go, no, hang on, this is, this is why we do things. This is what we work. This is part of our framework. It very much exists in the States. doesn't exist in this country. doesn't exist in Europe. And we're having some absolutely amazing conversations about, all right, well, let's, let's work out exactly how we, how we take this forward. And, um, and there's some really exciting times coming up, you know. There's uh, the automotive industry is being absolutely transformed by electrification, um, as well as a change in buying habits that people, you know, don't tend to go to dealerships anymore. Mate, I had a leaf for a few days from mm. Westway. Yeah, what did you think of it? I'm fucking, I want one. It's remarkable, isn't it? There's I, just been this tipping point. I, of, honest to God. Yeah. I mean, the single biggest thing, the, the USP for me was it quartered my fuel costs for like three or four days. Yeah. And when you do it, I do a lot of mileage. Is it, man? And plus, with my tinnitus, yeah, and like the partial hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. silent. The car's silent. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very quiet. So yeah. in my car, in a normal um, combustion engine car, yeah, if there's people sitting in the back, yeah. I ain't having a conversation because I can't hear them because all the background noise it yeah, really messes course. with my hearing. Yeah. Hey, EV, silent man. I don't have to have the radio full blast so I can hear the podcast. Not my podcast. Podcast. I, I can hear people. I can have a conversation with people in the back. It's like so like you listen game, to your own podcast on the car. Uh, only the good ones. I, w- <laughs> I won't be listening to this one. <laughs> no, quite right. We'll see. You went off a tangent. We've uh, so we got talking co- about our love for Tony Lewis. <laughs> and he, yeah. The Tony got Lewis a- Love Podcast is brought to you <laughs> by Black Sheep. This is where I'm from, by the way. Oh, you just I'm really impressed it. you got right, us. We just op- we got a couple of minutes left. Hmm. You just opened your beer. Yeah, we we, on, we have actually got a couple of minutes left. So, um, shameless plug opportunity. Yeah. What have you not covered? What have you not mentioned? Um, and how can people get older? The um, we're doing some really interesting stuff at the moment. So sounds like it. Yeah. Um, I'm training up a team right now to do the Autosport Live Action Arena. So Autosport is the start of the motorsport year. It's second week in January, so I think it's eighth um, to the tenth, eighth to the twelfth. Sorry. Um, in the NEC, takes over the place, but there is a live-action arena at the centre of it, which is seriously cool. And we headlined the live-action arena a couple of years ago with Billy Munger, uh, who we'd taught to drive again, and Terry Grant. Billy Munger, one leg Billy Munger? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the guy who amputated his legs. Yeah, the really exactly. young lad? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, man. 
Yeah, who's now you know on a path towards F1 and all of the rest. Simon is one of the most inspirational he's people you can kid. you can follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, he's he shared a surgeon with a whole load of our blokes. Uh, Military surgeon working in Nottingham at the time, and that was that was the guy who who did his his amputations. Is this the same person who dealt with Johnny Ball? Mm, no, I don't Johnny think so. was on about some military surgeon who mm, squared yeah, him away. Not yeah. anyway, go on. And um. And it was amazing, just an extraordinary thing to do. And we took uh, we took quite a small team, um, but it was transformational for them. So Paul Weiss was one of them. Um, you know, I, I, thank you for listening. Uh, Buzz. 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 <laughs> 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 Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so sorry for people listening. Me going bars. We had some uh, some noise coming through the headphones. Yeah, go on. Sorry, James. So we, um, uh, so Paul Vice, military crossholder, was one of those um, uh, who went and did something really cool. Uh, we are lining up to headline that with Terry Grant this year. So we've got a mixed team of uh, I think ten who are going forward to go and do it this time. Veterans, um, few serving guys in amongst them as well. Who, who are in line for medical discharge. Um, guys training up to be a stuntman, um, a service spouse, so someone who served themselves and also was a, as a spouse, doing it as part of their recovery journey. And we, we're going to be um, lighting up the, uh, uh, the NEC live-action arena for autosport. And that's a really cool piece of kit for those, those to do. And alongside some pretty cool brands too. So if... Um, uh, but today's the most exciting piece was um, it's going to have a bit of a military theme, clearly, the piece that we'll do. So they'll be doing a precision driving display in amongst uh, the band of the Irish Guards. Oh. So we're going to put them in the arena and basically do donuts around Don't them. Don't run them over. Um, yeah. Well, as an opportunity to run over a man in a bearskin <laughs> uh, holding a trombone is um, <laughs> in, in a new Morgan is, uh, is fairly surreal. So for those, those guys and girls, that's a really cool piece of work. But in... February, we're going to run a transitional support event, and this is really new and unusual. But it's building on the back of the big events which we run for wounded, injured, and sick. But we're going to run it for people who are in transition, so those who need a job in 2020 and 2021. And we're going to pull together a whole load of cool brands and causes and things like that, and put it all under in the wing. And we'll use the GP circuit at Silverstone. So at some point, yeah, you know, if you want to. You want to get your bum in a Koenig's egg, that's a pretty good reason to to get down to Silverstone. But you're also going to meet a lot of employers. You'll get time alongside recruiters. Um, none of it with any commitment or anything like this. It's all about supporting the individual. I'll go alongside LinkedIn. It'll help sort out LinkedIn profiles and things like that. But we'll also meet an awful lot of veterans who are working for these companies. So you go and meet people who have been through the same experience that, that perhaps you might be going through. Um, just to help to widen people's horizons, to educate them um, about just what is potential and what is out there. We're going to run it in February with the support of Silverstone, and that's going to be a really exciting event. But if you want to kind of find us or the charity, um, uh, missionmotorsport.org and missionautomotive.org, we'll both get you to the right place. And obviously we're on Facebook, uh, we're on Twitter, um, and uh, and I'm on Twitter too much. Um, so... Uh, so it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to, uh, to kind of get in touch with us at Tanks Slater. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. There you go, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Cheers, Jim. Thanks, my friend. Cheers, mate.
That's it. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for listening uh, or watching. No, because if you're watching, you wouldn't be hearing this bit. We're on YouTube as well. So if you're listening, you can catch us on YouTube. You can watch You can watch the podcasts on YouTube and uh, watch us uh, gesticulating with our arms and faces. If you can gesticulate with your face, I'm not sure, I don't know if you can. Anyway, thank you again to our sponsors, West Wayne, Sound at Cody UK, up to 20% off for serving personnel and veterans. And they're currently giving away um, free uh, winter checks for your car. Book in online, westwaynesound.co.uk. Book your car in for a winter checkup. They'll go in, check it all over. Clutch, fluid, brake fluid, tyres, all the usual palaver. They will get in amongst your car, make sure it's good to go, and you get it back. And you're safe in the knowledge you're driving nice and safely in this shitty cold weather. Wet weather. Windy weather. Thank you to West Nissan and Tony Lewis. Uh, West Nissan at UK. West Nissan on social media. Also, thank you to Rugby for Heroes. A reminder that they are a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities. Their next two events are on the 27th of May. Is it the 27th? 27th of May, uh, 2020. Uh, that's the supper club at the Tame Hair in Leamington Spa. A fucking amazing restaurant. Uh, really... Uh, Generous restaurant for, um, let us use that for the Rugby Heroes Supper Club. And after that, it's going to be the 8th and 9th of May 2020, which is VE Celebration Weekend, I believe. And that is going to be two days, rug, uh, beer and drink festival, getting drunk, playing rugby, meeting cool people, networking, getting drunk and playing rugby. So, rugbyforheroes.org or rugby number four heroes on social media. To catch up with that, they'll be raising money for Team Rubicon UK, a disaster response charity formed predominantly of military veterans and also the 353 Trust, an organisation which was formed in the name of Conrad Lewis, who was the 353rd British Forces person to be killed in the Afghanistan campaign. So thank you to Rugby for Heroes. That is it. On to the next podcast. No, that is not it. That is not it. If you listen to this podcast and you're enjoying it, please go to iTunes and leave me a review. Okay, that's the one thing. I really appreciate all the reviews that have been left there. It really helps get the podcast out to more people. But also, if you listen to this podcast and you think, fucking hell, James Cameron's an absolute dude. I really like this podcast. Don't message me. People message me and go, here, you like that podcast? Yep, cool. But don't message me. The podcast for the guests is for the people who listen. So get on to James Cameron on social media and message James. And say, James, I really like your podcast. You're an absolute dude. You're an absolute legend. I really like what you're doing. Give him the pat on the back. I don't need it. My ego is big enough. Until the next time, out.